Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, an interview with poets R. Erica Doyle and Ross Gay, hosted by Loganberry's Harriet Logan and organized together with local voices manager Maisha Hedden. In their conversation, Doyle and Gay discuss their work, their careers, and their relationships to language. Works by R. Erica Doyle and Ross Gay can be purchased from Loganberry Books online, with specific links included in the episode description. Thank you for listening, and enjoy! that so Ross Gay you you have Ohio roots tell us about your Ohio Ohio-ness well my father's side of the family is um they you know for the last couple generations are from Youngstown Ohio and they um so I was born in Youngstown I think by the time I was two my dad worked for Pizza Hut and he was kind of like you know a whatever some kind of manager who would move from store to store so we lived in I think I was just with my mother um, a couple of weeks ago, and I think I got it right that we were in Youngstown, Stowe, Hainesville, yeah. and then Illyria. And Illyria is kind of the last place we went. And then, and then that was all in like a couple of years. And then by the time I was five years old, we were living outside of Philadelphia. Okay. But but anyway, all my family, you know, my all my father's my father died in 2004, but all of his elders are alive in in. His nana's, in, I mean, his mother, my nana is in Cleveland, but the rest of them, my Aunt Butter, my Uncle Bennett, Uncle Bennett's 97, Aunt Butter's 95. I should not say this out loud, she would not approve. Um, and Aunt Verna's like 89. Um, they all they all still live in Youngstown and, you know, yeah. they were teachers, Uncle Bennett, he worked at GM and the Lordstown factory. Yeah. A lot of folks lived out, worked out there and, you know, steel mills and all that. You'll like one of my rapid fire questions then. <laughs> we'll get there at the end. And uh, Erica, you've been in Brooklyn most of your life, I, I think, right? I was born here, actually. Um, I was born about two miles from where I live right now um, in you know a local hospital in a Caribbean neighborhood. Um, and not far from the house where my family landed in the 1920s when they first came to, when the first, there was the first wave of them who came to the United States from Trinidad. So I'm, I haven't wandered very far from my roots either. You know, like you guys are still in the Midwest and I'm still here. Um, and it's, and I, you know, I had a short stint where I was in, um, Beth, I, was in Connecticut, living there, Northeast again, and then um, in Washington, D.C., where I lived for actually 12 years um, mm-hmm. and was part of this really wonderful poetry community that was there in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, and then came back home. So, and I'm back in Brooklyn. I lived in Manhattan for a minute because, you know, it was the city. I had to do it. It was very <laughs> cool. No one ever imagined Brooklyn would be the cool place to live in a thousand billion years. Yeah. I remember, you know, my mom's past, but I remember her telling me, Erica, I never thought that apartments in Brooklyn would be more expensive than apartments on the Upper East Side. Wow. She said, Erica, people, rich people are buying houses in Harlem. I don't understand it. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm like, okay, I guess I'll go back to Brooklyn. <laughs> I didn't know we were cool. <laughs> yeah, you do. And Erica and Ross, you know each other. Yeah. Tell tell me how you met. How weird how did you know? I know. I He's know. my cousin. I don't even know. 
<laughs> well, we were both in Cave Canem, yeah. but not at the same time. Right. So Cave Canem is a, um, like a retreat and organization for uh, uh, poets of African descent. And I went, but we were not, it's a retreat. So I went to the retreat, but we weren't at the retreat at the same time. You came yeah. after, you were like one of the babies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. And now I'm like one of the elders. It's like I'm an old man. Like, when were you there? When were you there? At the beginning? So, yes. <laughs> I went the very second year it was in existence. So, you know, Kavi Khanum is like a thing now, but it was, you know, just really some people um, giving each other refuge, you know, at the very beginning. And it started in 96, and I went in 97, 98, and 99. Yeah. So, who all was there? Oh my gosh. Um, who, like, who wasn't there? You know, our teachers were Sonia Sanchez and Lucille Clifton. Damn. Uh, and Michael Harper. Yeah. yeah. What? Yeah. You know, and uh, Harriet Mullen came for the first time. And at that time, no one really knew who she was. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of us sort of like experimental upstarts. And we were like, you got to get Harry Mullen here. You got to get Erica Hunt here. You got to connect these, you know, experimental black women doing stuff. And people are like, what is this writing? What is this even, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's just so amazing to think about how, you know, just how things start, how do movements start and how do people organize and connect. And then it turns into something very powerful and amazing. So really, um, gosh, you know, I'm, <laughs> And you know what? Lucille Clifton and Sonia Sanchez would sometimes hang out at each other's workshops together, uh, which was really scary. Mm. Lucille Clifton was very intimidating to me. Yeah, <laughs> Sonia Sanchez like? is very like motherly, like, oh, I'll give you a hug or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Lucille was very kind of hardcore, I thought. Well, on, um, on the page, on the poems too? Yes, what? Mm. Oh mm. my God. <laughs> You'd be like, oh no, Lucille's gonna see my poem. I'm so scared. <laughs> She'd be like, why is this like this? Why is this even here? Why did the poet put this there? And you would be like, oh my God, I'm so dumb. <laughs> and some people love that because most people were very gentle with us. Like, I mean, toy Derek, like yeah. she just wants to love you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Lucille was like, you know, really at your craft. Um, and Michael Harper too, in a kind of very heady way. Uh -huh. um, but it was really, it was really fun and amazing. And so Kavi Khanum, it's like a family. Yeah. Um, and so Ross and I met like at a Kavi Khanum event or something. I don't even I know. know, a reading, a party, I know. I know. A whatever. I know. And then we were like, hi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it is kind of crazy like that, how we just, like uh, even trying to locate where it was, because remember they had that 10th anniversary thing? Yes. Um, but there was just so many events that we would have been at together. Yeah, it's like your cousins that you, you yeah. know, like that your parents are introducing you to for the first time. They're like, oh, that's your cousin. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then you're like, okay. Yeah, you play together. Right. <laughs> and then you play together forever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to say though, Ross, you know, I'm so... I really love you as a person. You're such a beautiful person. And I'm so pleased to be able to tell that to students and people I share your work with mm -hmm. um, and say, you know what? He really is as wonderful as what you're reading. Mm. What you're feeling from what he's reading, that's him. Mm. And everyone's not able to do that, to be their vulnerable selves on the page, mm. such that it's not you know, necessarily um, like a blow by blow or a memoir or something like that, but that like the essence of that person is really there on the page. And um, I have to tell you that a lot of both my friends and my students have found solace in your work, mm. solace and healing. Um, and it's been, it's really beautiful to have that to offer. So thank you for being in the world. Yeah, you too, <laughs> God, thank you. I have hand sold particularly the Book of Delights to so many people, mm. uh, many of whom are writers and they come back, some of them so much more well read than me. So it was always, always a, a joy to give somebody <laughs> a new wonderful read that they didn't have already, right? And they come back, yeah, that, that's it. My <laughs> baby loves this book. <laughs> yes. He chews it and like would not leave this, but when I got, he was like, 
carrying it around the house. I was like, do you, you know that? I was like, he, he knows that's Ross. <laughs> He's like, that's my cousin. That's my cousin. <laughs> At least two people have come back to me and said that they started their own daily writing exercises of sweet. small, joyful essays as a result of reading your work. <laughs> so that's cool. <laughs> um, and you're both teachers, but different, different age range. And Erica, are you still teaching or you're just heading to school? Um, I mostly, I'm, I'm mostly doing the leadership and administration now. Um, I was teaching, so I last, I last taught an English class to uh, 11th and 12th graders a couple years ago um, and had the pleasure of introducing them to Lucille Clifton and um, having them read, you know, uh, their eyes were watching God, which was really cool. Um, and so that was a couple years ago, but since I became principal, I was assistant principal then, but since I've been principal, I've been mostly um, just having fun going to other people's classes and supporting other teachers um, and just and supporting kids and families. And so that's where my focus has been. But yeah, teaching, I love teaching. And however, I still have, um, you know, done workshops. So outside of my job job, I also do community <laughs> workshops. Like I was a mentor for Poets House and I did fellowship for um, St. Mark's Poetry Project. So I do uh, mentor other and teach uh, poets in the community um, through different organizations. Wonderful. And Ross, tell us about your teaching. I teach, um, <clears throat> I also kind of teach around, like workshops around, but I teach here at Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, and yeah, I teach um, mainly workshop. I mean, like the more I teach, the more I think I'm getting clearer on um, how I teach. I think mainly what I'm teaching these days, you know, making beautiful shit together. <laughs> <laughs> That's like what I want to study, so. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, like I teach poetry workshops and stuff, so-called, but I'm kind of like, um, now it's like, let's make a movie where the sycamore tree is the protagonist. There has to be choreography. There has to be, <laughs> cool. has to be you know, something has to happen in reverse. Seven minutes. Can't, it can't be more than six. It has to be between six and seven minutes and see you next week. You know, <laughs> That's so cool. Oh God. It's so fun. It's so fun. Yeah. Excellent. Stylistically, your poetry has little resemblance to each other, so we're not going to pretend that <laughs> we're in the same uh, stylistic camp. Um, for, for the back of the house, Erica's uh, book, Proxy, uh, deals with lesbian desire and unrequited love, and Ross, your books of poetry um, of gratitude and your latest Beholding, which it's just a tour de force. Uh, we'll get into more techniques later. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sum that up in a word. <laughs> but the the language is certainly joyful, and the couplets just driving it through. I you have like five periods in the whole darn book. Um, it, it's just a a brilliant not quite stream of consciousness, it's more like the, the fluid currents of, of time and society as you pull it all together, starting with basketball. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I love that. Um, you have one line though in Beholding, which I think might sum up the whole of its various pieces, which is the Museum of Black Pain. Mm. And yet, being Ross Gay, you have such a source of gratitude and love from which you explain your world and your field that it's just a pleasure to read. I want to talk about technique because I can play off your input better there. So language, language I love. And I love when poets and writers use opposite sensory experiences to describe things. Mm. I, I always call it swimming in color. <laughs> but both of you play with this. I'll give you a couple of examples to bounce off of. Uh, in a book of delights, Ross, of course, says, I, I will pause here to offer a false etymology. Delight suggests both of light and without light. Um, and Erica, in proxy, you have I'm sorry, I had to pull this up being from Cleveland. 
the fires burned on the river and three rivers burned together in the night. You'll have to tell us if this is literal or not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to two other quick examples of body parts of, of speech interchanging themselves. Ross in Beholding, when will they verb what I keep doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when will this repetition become part of our mainstream lexicon? <laughs> And in proxy, Erica, you've got a line. If thunder were a vowel, this is the lip it would occupy. So tell me more about how language drives you and how you undermine and usurp it. Well, I just think who I am as a, as a person, and I, it's connected to my relationship to language in the first place. I think a lot about how you know, the language that I'm speaking and the accent that I'm using to speak with you right now is um, very particular to the context and the time. And that I, um, I came up and was raised in a context that was incredibly multilingual and multi-dialectical. And so people were speaking um, languages that they had really sort of ripped from the colonizers mouths and from the enslavers mouths and they were speaking a kind of Spanish, they were speaking a kind of English and they were speaking a kind of French that was still connected to their African indigenous heritages. And you know, with West African syntax and um, vocabulary from many different languages. And so I think I have my relationship to language is in a way very, you know, kind of predatory and vengeful, also joyful because I, I feel similarly about it. To me, the delight of the language that was surrounded me as a Trinidadian person growing up in the United States, it was similar at, to the blues where something, something beautiful has been created out of something extremely painful and terrifying. Um, and in response to, uh, in response to incredible uh, marginalization and torture, people were able to create something beautiful that sustained them and connected them to each other across time and across countries even, right? Because really the, the, the Atlantic, the Black Atlantic is one thing, right? South Carolina is connected to Haiti, is connected to Grenada, is connected to Trinidad. And so I, so, at, you know, and we hear in sort of the Gullah Geechee, like our language. There are some things in language and syntax and grammar. And also when I was in college, I, I was a linguistics minor. So I'm also really interested in how language is built and thinking about how it's built. As a reader, I was exposed to all these wonderful and exciting ways that people were using language. Um, and I go back to Harriet Mullen, I go back to Erica Hunt, and thinking about that was the first time for me encountering black women who were really, really interrogating language and how it was used and then Claudia Rankin. And so for me, it's almost like a sort of a grammatical synesthesia in a way where we're taking, really perceiving what language can do, what words can do, what the morphology can do and putting it somewhere else that allows the reader to have a different experience than they might have expected from that word or from that structure. And I'm, you know, I'm someone who plays with language a lot in my head and phrases come to me and I dream lines, things like that. So I'm also, I'm a very, very intuitive writer. I have friends who are like very like, like Don Lundy Martin is a very, very kind of like every single word she thinks about, right? And I'm a little bit more of a flow person and so, and a little bit more intuitive and sort of dreamlike in the way that I write or generate writing. And so, but also I have to feed my intuition great things. That's important. Yeah. Yes, that's lovely, Erica. Yeah. And, and something you said is, is something that I can quote right out of Ross's work of Catalog on a Batch Gratitude to convert sorrow into honey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, Erica, what you were saying and made me think that there are these, one, the intuition. God, I love the intuition. And <laughs> I feel like that's part of my growing up as a writer to like sort of be, be invested in and interested in um, intuition. 
and the other thing that I was thinking is that part of what's really interesting to me is the way that all of this language stuff is negotiation. It's a kind of like, it, it's perpetually in sort of like struggle and negotiation and imagination, you know? So it's um, even thinking about the, there's in this new poem, this beholding poem, it's like there's, I'm talking, there's a number of registers I feel like that are being used and and it, you know, maybe there's like the voice of the speaker and then maybe there's like a sort of basketball language. And then there's maybe a kind of discourse around looking or a discourse around photography or all of these different registers. And to sort of like, you know, roll around in all these registers like that, that's a skill that, you know, some of us have, <laughs> which may or may be a skill that is required to walk down the street. And <laughs> so yeah, I was really- Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to get down the street. <laughs> That's all I want right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to be in this grocery store. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and go home for my kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think even right now, like how Harriet keeps saying "beholding," I'm like, it's beholding. It's yeah. beholding. Yeah. Like that's why I sound like beholding. You beholding stuff. Like that's yeah. how. That's how I hear the title. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, beholding. <laughs> oh, look at that. I, I had a positive. <laughs> oh, beholding, like beholding to something. But yeah. I'm always, because I sit the basketballs on, so I'm like, oh, yeah, you behold it. Right? <laughs> so, for me, it's beholding. That's the name of the book, beholding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think also what you said about the registers is, you know, I'm a kind of anti sports person. So I was like, wow, it's basketball. But I had to read it because it's Ross Gay's book. And what I think happens is you take us on a journey with these voices and you taught me how that, how the meta, how the metaphor of basketball, and I mean, understanding how important it is in you know, black culture particularly, but how, how this metaphor is something that even though I um, would never watch a game on TV, it is a very personal thing. And you take me on this journey where there are ways that you're teaching me how to understand what this means and what it's connected to and what other ideas in the conversation. And when you were saying that about the registers, I thought, yes, the registers, it's a negotiation. It's also guiding the reader, I felt. Yeah. Definitely, and the reader is, is an interesting aspect of that journey three little asides that you fill into beholding, breathe, second line, breathe in parentheses, 10 pages later in italics. What the fuck are you looking at? And another 20 pages later in italics again, how do we be? These three and, and others that you have interspersed in beholding seem like breaking the fourth wall and direct attack to the audience saying, I'm talking to you and you're part of this poem and you're part of this photograph and you're part of this jump shot. Um, tell me more about that and, and tell me about the photographs. Um, that, that's sort of like address to the reader thing or the kind of parenthetical address or the, I think I have a lot of um, feelings or wonderings about that. I mean, one thing I think is that I feel like it's something that I do a little bit. I'm interested in like being a, a vocal, like the poem is a vocalization, you know? And I think I'm always interested in the poem as sort of some kind of, some kind of artifact of a body that is in fact dying, you know, a body that's bound in time and space. And there's all these ways I think to do that. But like one of the ways is maybe to like get the voice really like it's someone trying to talk to you, you know? Um, and trying to talk to you implies also holds a kind of difficulty because the way that we talk is actually it's complicated, you know? Um, and so um, I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to do. So it is like an actual trying, it's, it is about proximity. You know, that poem is trying to, it also is like wanting a kind of unfinishedness. So I actually like made a revision to the poem after it came out and, and the poem is no longer, like it's not a sentence. There's no period at the end. And the way it starts is like, you know, I can't remember, but I can't remember the verse, <laughs> but whatever it is, you know, now it's a lowercase a-n-d, the word end. 
and it's it's just open. And the idea is that it, there's a kind of openness um, to the poem that it's an unfinished it's an unfinished breath. You want it? Yeah. You might have noticed there's nowhere to go. The wind yeah. cutting the little eddies. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so yeah, now it's and you might have noticed there's nowhere to go. <laughs> it's just like it just keeps on going and it doesn't end. And yeah. <laughs> And partly there's some way that I'm interested in how, like I'm interested in the um, the sentence. I'm interested in, and you know, and Erica, I think your work is a really beautiful sort of wondering about this. As a lot of our folk, and you know, it's a lot of like, I think of like Dawn, I think of- I'm Yeah, sorry, yeah. I think of like Simone, I think of- Yes, like, yes, Simone, oh gosh. Like folks who are, you know, um, who just get us to think hard about Terrence, who get us to think hard about grammar, yes, you know, the relationship of things, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. yep. systems of, of meaning. And one of the things I was taking a class here, sitting in on a class with a guy here named Jake, Jake Cameron Carter, like a beautiful um, writer and um, thinker. And he, you know, Emnor Basie Phillip, you know, like we we read Zong in that class and it was you know like yeah wow and I could have read that that book in a class and it, every single time I read it just just trying to think of of ways that grammatically we can sort of imply some of the ethical concerns that we have yes and one like an unsentencing yes yes of something you know is one of the mm -hmm. things that um is related to those parentheticals too yes but uh, as far as photographs, um, I've been interested in photographs for a long time, but I feel like, um, and visual, visual representation for a long time, but I feel like I've become um, in the last 10 years when a certain kind of circulation and currency um, to the circulation of certain kind of photographs has become more you know, aware, you know, I was gonna say inflamed, um, of, of, of that would be appropriate. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have a pile of photographs to choose from and then narrow it down? No, I was, you know, starting with that that image, that Dr. J move as an image, actually, <laughs> um, a reading of an image. Then, so partly, like, I'm sort of interested in the idea of like the reading of the image, and so this is an, an a reading, an extended reading of a physical movement um, or play or you know. So the, the images that I, it was the, the Dr. J image, and then it was this other image that I encountered that, you know, I read in the, um, in the, in the poem quite a bit. And then I just sort of came upon this other image and the other image that I came upon. And really, I was just, I was actually uh, working on another project, this project about my relationship to the land. And I was trying to find what, where my great grandfather, um, who changed his name to Henry Jones, what his kind of region would have looked like where he was a sharecropper, and which would have been Arkansas. It would have been Arkansas before the WPA, but I was looking at the WPA photos in the Library of Congress. And I just stumbled upon this photograph. And then I stumbled upon this photograph and partly the way that I started to, wanted to engage that photograph is, is very much, I'm having a conversation with that photograph, but I'm also having a conversation with a poem of Araceli Skirmais called The Black Maria. So that whole extended reading is in conversation with some of her poems. Um, and, you know, so all the looking, the looking is like, you know, um, and then it moves to images of my, my own family um, in terms of the looking. And then the final move, you know, ending of the, where that Carrie Mae Weems photograph arrives. Um, I think I knew that I needed a photograph, an image that wanted to sort of demonstrate what it was that, you know, what it was that is a kind of looking that I'm, that, that I love basically, that, um, that is, hold, that holds us, that holds us. Kind of looking that is also a holding or a looking that is also a reaching as opposed to a looking that is um, other kinds of looking, cataloging, corralling, you know, um, capturing, shooting. So, that's sort of that's sort of some talk about those how the photographs arrive, you know, lyrically is the word, uh, um, intuitively is is a little bit the word. Thank you, that's fabulous, Erica. The epitaphs that you choose to intersperse as as 
prefaces to your chapters, I want to read one. Um, this is from a tour of the calculus. In this single effervescent instrument of a differential equation, the particular is seen as an aspect of the general and the general seen as an aspect of the particular. To me, this is like an entire philosophy of poetry right there. Which one leads which? How does this uh, percolate in your, in your poet's mind? Well, I'm very interested in all the ways that humans make meaning of the world. And so I'm very interested in science. I'm very interested in mathematics, sort of in and of themselves. Like I've always been interested in that. And I was someone, I was raised by a mom who was, you know, kind of, you know, who was like defied gender stereotypes. And my mom was, a, um, was at, you know, she wasn't able to keep going with her schooling at the time, but she really wanted to be an electrical engineer. And so she did get an associate's degree in, in electrical engineering at City Tech. And my mother could rewire your entire house and create schemata. And, um, and so in our house, we had books um, about electromagnetism and lots and lots of science books. And she also was an avid reader and would read lots of science fiction. Um, and because she was in uh, an engineering interest, she also had mathematic books. So along with things like the Black Jacobins and all this revolutionary Caribbean <laughs> writing um, and history and involvement because my um, part of my family were kind of part of Pan-Africanism, socialist movements, independence movements, helped write the constitution um, of the newly independent Trinidad. So my, that was sort of all around. And to me, all that knowledge was part of how we understood the world. It weren't separate from each other. In my house, it wasn't separate, right? So conversations with, I also have like sort of a lot of nature imagery as well, but nature and mathematics are one, right? Mathematics comes from nature. If you, especially if you, you know, look at the Egyptians or go back, you know, at the Arab mathematicians, you really see that, na that mathematics has evolved from nature and our need to discuss nature and to organize our environment and to communicate with each other. So in my house, all these things were the same. It was only at school that I had different workbooks for things, but in my family, you might have conversations about politics and then people really got into, I had a couple uncles who were really into ornithology. So I know a lot about birds randomly and I know different bird songs and one of my uncles, because we, we he, he wanted me to learn about the birds where we were living now in New York because they were always talking about Caribbean birds. So he bought me North American birds. I mean, all this is to say that I had a life that was very much about the arts and sciences together. And so I was trying to understand some things about myself. And when I do that, I read lots of different things. And one of the things I read was a tour of the calculus. You know, sometimes I also read books about psychiatry or mindfulness. And so at the time, I just was trying to understand our, how we relate to each other. You know, I was trying to understand relationships between me and my mother, generational trauma, um, between me and lovers, between uh, women and other women, between uh, people of different genders, and between myself and war and my family and war. And I wanted something that could put some kind of order to it. So I started looking at physics um, and reading books about physics and uh, theoretical physics. And I was trying to impose an order on something that's chaotic. That's what I was reaching for is how we're in conversation with all of these ways of knowing systems of thought. Erica, are you writing about that photograph or is that photograph? You know what? I wasn't gonna write about that photograph till today. I was like, oh damn. <laughs> I look at it every day. It's like right where I'm like, it's like I work with my grandma and my mom, right? My unborn mom. And, uh, you know, but because of, I mean, I admired how you did it, but I was like, I don't know how I could do that. But how you just explained it, I was like, you know what? I think I wanna try that. Mm -hmm. Speaking of your great-grandfather, you know, and the other thing I've been doing, I've been working on a lot of genealogical stuff. The contrast between, say, my, this photograph of my grandmother and at the, in, the, in the, let's say, like the, uh, early, the late 1700s, early 1800s, there was, um, you start to see a series of paintings coming out of the Caribbean. 
majority of them are by white people. Majority of them are these kind of picaresque um, or you know bucolic scenes. And but they're some of the only images we have of what it was like to live at that time. Mm. And they would paint and draw um, the people who were enslaved, who were formerly enslaved, free people of color, um, white society. Um, and then there, and there was one man who was a free man of color, whose name is Casabon in Trinidad. And he has, you can tell that when he is drawing the people because, uh, you know, he maybe had a white parent or white grandparent, but his mothers were African, right? And you can tell the sensibility is different in his paintings. They look less like caricatures or cartoons. They're less grotesque, say like when they're dancing. Mm -hmm. um, and the women are so beautiful and there's so much close attention because remember this was, these were um, people in the, from the French Caribbean. And so there's lace and, you know, and the white for the, um, you know, which is a very spiritual color. And mm -hmm. so like the lace and the adornments and just as the women were sort of persecuted in New Orleans for these amazing head wraps that they would have um, that were so beautifully tied, um, you know, like West African women do. And so I, so when you said that, I just thought about the difference between, you know, cataloging, memorializing, celebrating, and in his work, you can see that there's a tension between what the public is going to receive and demand, right? Because he's got these uh, Europeans who are buying these or wanting to put them in their manor houses in London. Mm. Um, and then who, he, like you can tell he can really see the people. Mm -hmm. um, and he is a person who's sort of between worlds. Yeah. And yeah. I feel that you can see that there. And so I'm just, and I use in my, in my new project, I actually intersperse some of these images with also um, slave registers from, um, sadly, from people who were enslaved by some of my ancestors mm -hmm. and who, some of whom may have been my ancestors as well, who are, who were enslaved people in those registers. And so just thinking about how we catalog, how we memorialize and how we receive those, those texts, those visual texts, um, interpret them, contextualize them and speak to them. That's, I wanted to hear you, um, I wanted to hear you talk about that. And I knew, I had a feeling that there was some kind of convergence that one of the projects that I'm working on that has to do with this land book I'm working on. I've been doing a little genealogical work. Uh, I'm not good at it, uh, but I'm, I'm just a little bit, but I went back and so, you know, my, these Youngstown folks, like the, the um, matriarch of that family is named, um, many names, but um, Biggie is <laughs> Biggie, but Nellie McKay or Sophia Farouk. Um, but her grandmother on the, it go, that's as far as it goes back. Yes. The white man's um, name was McKay. And mm. so we have these family reunions and it's the McKay family reunion. Right. And then in the document from Ancestry or whatever is that, you know, our family is sort of like building the family tree out with, her name is Unknown Slave. Oh. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. Listen, did you see the interim issue that uh, Ronaldo just edited? No. I have a poem in there about this called The Black Mothers, oh. a dialogue. Because when I go back, yeah. right, because yeah. I have a sim similar lineage, right? Look at our color. Yeah. And yeah. so when I go back, I'll go, I can, I'll go back, back, back until I have no more names and that's the black mother <laughs> that's the black mother mm. so whether it's you know 1800 ours is 1703 or 1704 wow right um french caribbean was a little different in some ways right so but you go back and you are at the black mother right. and i say you know her and how do I know my first mother was a black mother? I also did like DNA stuff, right? So where, where, where are they? Where are their names? They're in our mitochondria, right? That's it. That's it. That's where their names are. They're written on our cells. Yeah. They're not in the documents. Yeah. Yeah. We might never find them in a document. Yeah. 
but they're in ourselves. Right, right. They're with us. So where, so when you see the tree, are, what are, how does that connect to what, how you're, what you're working on? I'm trying to write about land and I'm trying to write about many things. And, you know, I'm trying to write about my family, but one of the things I'm trying to write about is, is land. I mean, the book came to be because I was sort of wondering about black farming. Um, as I got into gardening, I was like, you know, and into this stuff, like so much of the sort of like public depiction of it was that it was a white thing. And I was like, you know, so I was just like sort of, you know, curious, wanted to study black farming. And I knew that my own family had a, you know, agricultural past as we do. But I started getting into these other more personal family questions. And even, you know, like I'm, I'm writing this piece about my father and his brother in my in Biggie, again, she was the matriarch and there was everything about her is sort of like, you know, amazing. And, but Biggie was among the things that she was, was an amazing gardener. And so there's this fight that happens in this garden. And the way that Biggie is spoken about too, is that she's a sort of like Biggie's place was a kind of Edenic place, you know? Um, like this, it was, it was one of the, it was one of the refuges. And this would have been 1940s, 50s, Youngstown, Ohio that I'm picturing. But as I was sort of contemplating this place, I was saying, you know, my, my father was really close to Biggie, you know, and spent a lot of time with Biggie and they were really, really tight. And there's a kind of, I'm just sort of trying to imagine, you know, like what it would have meant for my father's, you know, one of my father's primary caretakers to be holding, so Biggie was my father's grandmother. Biggie's grandmother was sold off. And just sort of like, what are the sort of, again, like the sort of epigenetic sorrows that do not have to be communicated through words, but also what are the epigenetic carryings and holdings like that also come through the cellular, come through the, all of the, so many things. I mean, one of the things I'm sort of trying to wonder about is how sorrow unattended to, just like care unattended to, um, unacknowledged leads to further devastation or further sorrow, you know? So in some kind of way, and you know, there's this kind of profoundly sorrowful, um, horrific thing that we know intellectually, but you know, when you see it, um, on the, on the document, oh, that's right. My family owned and sold my family. That's right. But you don't have to go back. You go back a little ways. It might be, yeah, like you said, it might be a century. It might be, you know, more than that, but you're gonna, you're gonna, oh, that's right. My family right. owned and sold my family. Yep. Right. <laughs> like we're carrying that. That's in our, both, both of it, all of it's in our body. Yep. I know when we found those documents that, and we saw not only did our white French family, but also our free people of color family from Grenada, also enslaved people. It, we were hurt. Like I remember we were hurt, some of my cousins who, and I who saw that. And it's, you know, it was, and it was a very kind of American kind of hurt, which was interesting. Because the Trinidadians were like, oh, yeah. Right. Um, but I think for us, we were like, oh, <laughs> what? Yeah. My feelings were hurt. And I couldn't talk about it for a while. I was ashamed. Yeah. And I think, too, learning about, like, the historical context. So as you were talking about, like, you know, Big East House is, a, is like, sort of this place of refuge for folks. And then the story of her mom, like how they got that land, how they kept that land, who else is connected to it, who was there before there were any Africans or Europeans on it. You know, I think the historical context um, is also really powerful and to put that together because one of the things I um, learned as I, I, I said, I need to understand the history of these people. And one thing I learned was that sometimes free people of color would, would, they would buy their relatives to keep them safe because people who were too dark or looked too African or didn't uh, obviously have a white father mm -hmm. um, could be re-enslaved. Right. So they wouldn't buy them and set them free because that would put them in danger, uh -huh. but they would, they would keep them with them to keep them safe.
Um, and that's one of the things I kind of hope happened. <laughs> I'm like, I hope they weren't total jerks. Yeah. Um, you know, but also I think learning that at the time when my fam my family uh, sort of were revolutionaries in Grenada and escaped to Trinidad mm. um, as free people of color. And in Trinidad at the time, in the early 1800s, they would put the heads of uh, insurrectionists, enslaved people on stakes. Right. So you would be walking past these plantations and there would be these, the heads of Africans on poles. And I thought to myself in 1801 or 18, this is what people were walking past on their land as they worked, whoever they were, like that was part of their reality. So, you know, so I think of all of that, like what was their part of their reality? Because I know the stories and I can imagine the people, but what else was happening at the time? Right, right. You know, think about your elders in Ohio and the things they had to do to keep their land. Yeah, yeah. You have a lot of new stuff to write about, Erica. I look forward to I'm reading. I'm working on it. Good. Yeah, God. Um, I'm going to ask you six rapid fire questions. I'm not looking for theories or you just whatever comes to mind. Here we go. <laughs> what children's book was the most influential in your life? Two. I love that frog and toad book. Like, I love that book. And, um, <laughs> I, I don't even know what's inside of it anymore, but like- Frog and Toad are friends. And then Frog and Toad are friends. Even like the idea of it kind of makes, chokes me up. <laughs> I just love, they're just friends. But I also read Power Man and Iron Fist, which is Luke Cage. Those were the books that I read when I was in middle, in, you know, like sixth grade, seventh grade. That's, I didn't read a lot, but that's, those were the things. Thank you. So we're twins. Frog and Toad are friends is also a book that was very close to my heart. Uh. <laughs> And I don't care, said Pierre. <laughs> it really, you know, gave me a fantasy place, you know, to live with my very strict parents. If you could own any rare book or any favorite beloved book, what would you like? I, you know, I'm thinking of these books from my research uh, that are, um, that are these monographs that, uh, in like formerly enslaved people um, and free people of color wrote in the Caribbean and that you hear referenced in other places, but I can't find them. Mm. And I, you know, they're not digitized maybe. So I really, really, really want first person accounts from yeah. the, yeah, from yeah. the Caribbean pre, you know, 18th, 18th, 19th century Caribbean. That's what I want. First person accounts by enslaved and formerly enslaved people. Yeah. Okay. Ross. Yeah, I was thinking, like, I don't know that there's like a book, but but yeah, if I could have, like, I could imagine that some of my family was keeping journals, you know, and I would oh. be, you know, I'd be interested, I would be interested, I'd, I'd be interested to read Biggie's journal, etc. you know. All right, Ross, tell me what the Rust Belt means to you. Um, Do you identify with the term? I understand the term. <laughs> But I don't know that I, I don't know if I identify entirely with the term, but I identify the city where my family lives as being one of the Rust Belt cities. And I identify some things with that, um, with that city and the term Rust Belt and other things. Erica, you're not from the Rust Belt, but what's the term mean to you? Especially being, uh, growing up in New York and then being raised by people who weren't born in the United States and being raised in a very kind of immigrant context. It was very notable to me as someone who grew up in New York, how disregarded the Rust Belt was. You know, I just think of it sort of as a swath of colonial extraction where both people and raw materials were extracted and used um, until they no longer benefited the people in power and they moved on and left a real devastation in their wake, but out of also uh, those places, you find so much art and strength and intelligence. And, you know, I basically grew up, you know, if we're talking Hunger Games, I grew up in the capital, right? 
and y'all are district 13. Right. <laughs> Take, just here. Take just a second to think of 1820, 1920, 2020. Now, fast forward to 2120. What art medium, what form do you think will be prevalent and world changing in 2120? Telepathic art. <laughs> okay. Ross. It'll be um... like VR on speed. Yeah, like you can carry it. I can't remember who said that, but like the stuff that you can carry around, you know. Okay, last question. Who would you like to fundraise for? Specific plugs, welcome. Oh, right now I'll say Hotels for Homeless Bloomington. Erica? And I would say the Fund for Public Schools in New York City. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this has been fascinating and enjoyable. And I thank you so much for joining us. I just want to say how grateful I am to get to talk to you all and Erica to see you. It just feels so lucky to get to see you. Me too. This is really wonderful. Thank you so much. This is really, really, really great. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com, check our social media at Loganberry Books, and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.